0: All right, you guys, I am currently struggling with a pinched nerve in my neck, and if you have ever had one, you know the pain. So I am feeling super thankful for today's sponsor, Tanasi. Tanasi's CBD, CBDA is two times better than CBD alone and better than over-the-counter ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and aspirin. It helps soothe and relieve my aches and pains like my pinched nerve, and it's great for sleep and anxiety, so I put it on right before bed. Tanassi was discovered by a team of chemists and biologists at Middle Tennessee State University and 5% of all revenue is given back to the university partner for ongoing research. It is THC-free and comes in a range of products. I love the topicals, but you can also choose from soft gels, gummies, and tinctures. Satisfaction is guaranteed. Try Tanassi for 30 days, and if you don't love it, you get a full refund. Go to Tanasi.com and use code MOM to get 25% off at checkout. That's T-A-N-A-S-I.com to get 25% off your first order with promo code MOM. Start ritual or add Essential for Women 18 plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com forward slash sober mom for twenty five percent off. Hi, welcome to the Sober Mom Life Podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne of My Kind of Sweet and the Sober Mom Life on Instagram. I don't consider myself an alcoholic, you don't have to either, and maybe life is brighter without alcohol. I hope you will join us on this journey, and I'm so excited to get started. Hello, welcome back to the Sober Mom Life Podcast. I am so excited to bring you the Real Sober Mom Chats they're back. We're doing this special Monday episode to kick off the Real Sober Mom Chats. Normally they will be on Fridays. Today I'm bringing you two. I'm really excited. I have received so much feedback about you guys just loving these real stories of real moms. They're not influencers. You know, they're in it. A lot of times they're still in that early sobriety trying to figure it out. Sometimes they have a couple months under their belt or maybe a year and they put together their story for this chat. And so I love that these chats are really, really raw, vulnerable, honest, they're brave. For many, this is their first time even talking about their sobriety publicly or sharing their story. And so it can be transformative for them. I love these moms so much. Don't forget that if you want to share your story, all you have to do is join us on Patreon. So that's where the sign up for all of this is. It is patreon.com slash the Sober Mom Life. I'll make sure to link that in the show notes. And I'm excited to get these going again. You guys love them and I do too. Yes, and then don't forget we have our Sober Mom Life group on Facebook. Is up to 16,000 moms. What? 16,000. That's crazy. And it's still like so supportive. If you are looking for community and connection, come join us there. And then if you want a little bit smaller, more intimate group, join us on Patreon. We have our Zoom meetings Tuesday, 11 a.m. Central. You can find that link in the Facebook group. And then we also have a Patreon Zoom meeting on Friday. So come and join us. We have a lot going on. You are not alone. You do not have to go through early sobriety by yourself. We need each other and we're here for each other. So I hope you enjoy these two episodes. This is kind of a special kickoff. And after this, then, it'll be every Friday. You'll hear from another Real Sober Mom. And yes, it is called Real Sober Moms because I love the Real Housewives. (laughs) So this is like the uh, Real Housewives except without all the, you know, the chaos that alcohol brings, although you will hear stories about the chaos that alcohol brings, (laughs) Okay, I hope you enjoy. I hope you have a happy Memorial Day. Just remember, if this is a first for you, I want to hear about it. Come and check in with me on my kind of sweet at Instagram. Give yourself a chance to see that alcohol was never, never what made summer fun. It's just not, you guys. And I know, I know that can be a hard pill to swallow at first, but if you give yourself a chance to see how damn fun you are without alcohol, I think you'll be surprised. Okay. Have a wonderful holiday and enjoy these sober mom chats. Allison, thank you so much for being here. You're going to therapize us. You're you're a therapist. (laughs) Just what we need. (laughs) Yes, of course. And so you reached out to me and I know a little bit of your background, but I need you to tell me and to share it because I was reading your bio and I was like, holy shit, like what you have seen (laughs) and what you help people with. So just give us just like the overview of who you have worked with and who you work with currently.
1: Yeah, sure. So I um, got my degrees into psychology and human sexuality. And then my advanced degrees are in um, forensic psychology.
0: When I think forensics, I think of like, like crime scenes. It's not that, right? (laughs) What is forensics? So
1: because of the CSIs, and you know, like um, all of those you know, people sort of, when they understand forensic, they immediately think of a crime scene and that's in part true. But usually with those shows, they're like combining six different jobs into one, right? So someone who's like the gun guy is not the person who's interviewing, who's not at the crime yes. scene. So forensic psychology has really to do with criminology and psychology. Really? So wow. it can be, um, you know, counseling people who are survivors of crimes. It can be working with offenders. Some people do like, uh, you know, sex offender therapy. Yeah, it can also be like what we think of as profiling. That's not quite exactly what happens, but yeah, that's the general idea. Someone who like profiles would be a forensic psychologist. So,
0: what made you want to go into that part
1: of psychology? You know, I don't know. I've been wanting to do this. Since I was a child, which was horrifying to my poor yeah. mother. So, you know, it's like, I want to be a ballerina, I want to be a dentist. And I'm like, I wanna work with serial killers. Yeah. She's um, like, should I, I be scrolled. worried? <laughs> <laughs> so it's been like a long-standing interest of mine. And what's somewhat interesting is when I went to college, I graduated high school in 99, it wasn't really a thing yet. So yeah. the popularity of those TV shows actually made the education around this field like much more accessible. So when I went to school, there was only two programs in the United States. I would imagine by now there's probably hundreds. I went went to NYU and I chose a program just for uh, psychology because they didn't have anything relating to like criminology or anything like that. And I was very, very interested in at the time they called it women's studies. Uh, Now, I think more appropriately, they call it gender studies. But so I did kind of like a, a combination of those two And then by the time I got to grad school, the the world had opened up, the shows had become popular, and the programs were starting to unfold. I picked one of the longest standing programs, which is at John Jay, um, specifically because they work with the FBI. So students who graduate the forensic psych program at John Jay get to do a very similar program as those studying forensic psychology in Quantico. So that was like a huge draw to me.
0: (laughs) Wait, Quantico? Is that like the TV show, right? I've never seen that, but that's what that is, right? (laughs)
1: I've never seen the TV show, but it is where basically FBI agents go to train.
0: Okay. I have so many questions. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. So you were like interested in serial killers when you were little or was it (laughs) like, I want to know what was the draw? Was the draw psychology or was, and there's no judgment here because I went through this like massive true crime phase, especially after getting sober when I just like needed to take my mind off stuff. And I also, my brother and I have another podcast and we went to school, to high school with a serial killer and my brother was on his list. And so we're like, you know, (gasps) we're from, we're from Wisconsin. Like Jeffrey Dahmer was imprisoned like 10 miles from my house growing up. Out of here. I know. And so, like, yeah, I I get the fascination with the serial killers.
1: Yeah. You know, I don't even know where it originated. I just like had a morbid fascination from like way too little. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I was always reading books. Like, even when I I was a kid, I was reading like all of the murder mysteries that were you into like
0: Nancy Drew and stuff too. Yeah. Yes. I
1: love like. Christopher Pike and like R.L. Stein, which were like horror murdery
0: and like goosebumps. Yeah. Totally. Okay. So then you found your program, and then, okay, so tell me more. I'm fascinated.
1: So soon after, so I worked um, in John Jay, I worked with the FBI um, and I wrote my thesis on the homicide of sex workers.
2: So I did a lot
1: of research with the FBI on women, particularly women who were involved in sex work and then ultimately were murdered because of it. And um, I helped the FBI kind of figure out like what type of a person, you know, again, this is where we like sort of call it profiling, like what type of a person does these crimes. So that sort of birthed Even more of my obsession with not only forensic psych, but also research. I really liked research at that time. When I came out of grad school, I became a private investigator, um, which is like... what. a strange part of my resume that like I hardly ever talk about since it feels so removed now. But I was doing—I was a private investigator. Um, I worked in corporate crimes. It's way less interesting than it okay, sounds. Okay, so so
0: you're not like I'm. I'm picturing you in like a trench coat and sunglasses and a hat, like with like a newspaper following like a, <laughs> like a cheating husband. So it wasn't that.
1: It wasn't that. I only did that twice, and even then, it was a little lackluster, to be honest. <laughs> so. Okay, this sounds this sounds way more exciting than my life. <laughs> So weirdly, like I had that career on the side and I was really still involved in working with like humans and clinical work. And I got involved at a hospital, um, actually New York um, Presbyterian Hospital, and they have a program there that it's volunteers, it's volunteer only, and you go into the hospital and basically whenever someone has been called in that they are a survivor of sexual assault or domestic violence, there is an advocate who meets them. There, okay. Yeah. Right? And you're sort of like the emotional support person to this, you know, this person who just, you know, survived something that's really atrocious. Yeah. And I did that for quite a while. And so that was the beginning of my clinical career. And after that, I had again sort of like the weird fascination of of understanding it all. So I, I understood yeah. it from a survivor's point of view, but I didn't understand it from a f- offender point of view. And I just I decided to quit my job as a private investigator, which I had been at for at this point, like seven, eight years. And I had to go back to school because the degree I got the first time no longer qualified for licensure. So I was in my 30s when I went back to grad school. Wow! And this time I had to do a practicum. And, you know, I didn't really want to do this. Stand- was kind of like, if I'm going to invest back into school and do all this stuff. I want to go for broke. And I had always had a curiosity about Rikers Island, which is a very famous jail in, in New York City, which is sort of notorious for being an awful place. So I had petitioned my school to let me work there. And they said, absolutely not. Program had closed. And it, like they no longer offered that. But because I had been a private investigator, and I don't know how to take no for an answer, <laughs> I investigated who used to run the program of internships. And I found her and I sent her an email and got an interview. And the irony to all of this is I also, which ties into sort of my soberness, but I used to be a New York city bartender and I was that for a very long time. And when I went to Rikers Island, it was not my degrees or my experience with anything to do with clinical work. Actually, the thing that got me in was that I was a bartender. So she was like, okay, so you know how to deal with crazy people and you know how to deal with erratic behavior. Sure.
0: Totally. Okay. I was a bartender in college, actually, before I was 21, which now I look at it and I'm like, how was I a bartender in a club before I was even 21? Like, they didn't even ask. I'm like, uh, sketch. But yeah, like, you have to deal with so much shit as a bartender, especially a woman bartender. Absolutely. You have to be tough. You have to know how to handle yourself. You have to be aware of your surroundings. It's that like street smarts. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it is. It absolutely is. Yeah. You know, you kind of got to be on your toes, right? Like things happen really quickly. Yeah, there. So
0: fast. Yeah. Okay. So you got an interview.
1: So I got an interview and I not only got placed, but they put me in solitary confinement with the people. It was a pilot ward. And basically the idea behind this unit was that they had mental illness and something had happened inside of Rikers Island that warranted them to get into solitary confinement. But they were like, okay, well, they're here and they're in solitary. So what if we give them access to a therapist? What if we give them access to mental health? Like, would this change recidivism, how they behave? We don't know. And so that became me. (laughs) I would run group therapy, which is a very hilarious crazy wild thing to do in solitary confinement.
0: Okay. So tell me, okay. So they're in solitary confinement, which, oh my God, I can't even imagine that. I mean, that is terrifying. Um, But so in solitary confinement, they're able to come out of it for a certain period during the day or, okay.
1: Yeah. in In the ward that I, the unit that I worked in, basically they were allowed to come out for the yard, which is outside. But I mean, even then, like they go outside and stand by themselves, It's not really that exciting of an opportunity. They are allowed to take showers. They're allowed to meet their lawyers. Like anytime there's a service that has to do with their case or them, they're allowed to come out of their cell. They would have to be shackled. You know, they weren't allowed to like freely move. So when I would meet them, they'd be shackled to the floor.
0: And are these – is this because – okay, I just have some questions. please. Is this because of the crime they committed or how they were conducting themselves in Rikers?
1: It's a great question. So if you get into solitary confinement, it almost is always because of something that happened inside of the jail. Okay. You know, part of the reason Rikers is a a pretty awful place is when someone gets arrested. So even if it's – like Rikers Island is a jail. It's not a prison, which means anyone who's there – yeah. Has been arrested and they are either awaiting trial or like a trial, use the word trial loosely, like getting in front of a judge. Yeah. Or they have been sentenced to less than one year. So they just, it doesn't even, they don't bother moving them to a state prison. They just keep them in Rikers Island.
0: Okay. Because the prison is some somewhere where someone's going to stay long, for long. Like if they get sentenced for yes. a long, okay. Wow.
1: Okay. Yeah. So unfortunately, what happens in Rikers is it's an extremely dangerous place. It has a lot of gang activity. There was actually an HBO show. God, the name escapes me. I think it's called The Night Of. And it's particularly about Rikers Island and this like innocent person that gets arrested and like what quickly happens to him in the next week to month.
0: What really opened my eyes to just like the prison system, the jail system is... Serial, that podcast, I think the yeah. second season. Like, you think that people go to jail and then they're just in jail and they're monitored, and it's like wild and so terrifying what happens in
1: jail. Yes, absolutely. Ugh. So, you know, they get there, and what, what quickly happens is, you know, it, it's not uncommon at all to suddenly have a fight, have to be protected, get into an argument with a guard. And for any of these reasons, a secondary case opens up right so if I mm-hmm. get arrested and I'm in Rikers and I punch another inmate, I now have my original offense, which is maybe like drinking and driving. I don't know. But now I also have a second offense, which is like I had an assault inside of Rikers. So these aren't
0: murders. They could no, they could ahead. just they could just get like a DUI and go there. Yes. my yeah.
1: God. Okay. This
0: is yeah. so scary. These are,
1: okay. like the people who get arrested in Rikers Island I mean, I don't know the statistic. It, it's been a few years since. But primarily are not people who have any sort of violent felon. You know, it's, it's, these are misdemeanors. They're, you know, I got caught with a weed bag. I, back back when it was, you know, criminalized, public intoxication.
0: Yeah. I mean, you hear Rikers and you just think like the worst, right? I, I do. Okay. <laughs> okay. Man. Okay. So you... You decide to do group therapy with the guys or the people. Were they mostly men?
1: My um, particular unit, they do use the units by sex.
0: Okay. So you decided to have these
1: guys in group therapy. Oh
0: my God. Yeah. (laughs) Why did you decide that
1: first of all? Well, I didn't, in fairness, I didn't decide I was forced. Okay.
0: (laughs) Really? Okay. So if it was up to you, do you think you would have done it that way?
1: Oh my God. It was a good idea to do it. And I think there was a lot of value in it. With that said, I hated every minute of it and I had anxiety each and every time I went in. So
0: I can imagine. (laughs) I I know. So my mom was a therapist. She's recently retired and she would go into like our local jail and then she talks about like doing this kind of work and and Uh that they would always yell like mental health is here and then they they would, you know, escort her in and stuff like that. I, I just can't imagine that
1: situation. It was very wild. And, you know, for me, the thing about the group, so I did group therapy and individual therapy. Okay. And the advantage of doing it in solitary and the rules around solitary changed right when I was there. So before, right before I arrived, you could be in solitary confinement for as long as they wanted you to. The mayor of New York City actually changed the rules and they only allowed someone to be 30 days inside. And then they had to come back, which actually is really great intention. And it, it didn't quite play out. The way there's a lot of like nuanced issues that happen inside of a jail that I won't bore you too yeah. much with.
0: I'm fascinated, but yes,
1: <laughs> but sometimes people would actually try to get themselves into solitary because it was safer, right? Oh, so, wow. um, yeah, there's all sorts of reasons that someone might like actually choose to want to be there, and you know because they're in lock, they're in lock in. Like, who wants to be in a jail cell for? 22 hours a day the fact that I was offering group therapy and incentivized them to come these guys never would have come out but it's just like okay I can sit in my room for another freaking hour or I guess I can go meet this chick Allison and she's going to talk to me about I don't know feelings yeah yeah that sounds better at least I can like pick on her you know yell at the other inmates take a walk yeah so we had a huge retention rate right people came out I had worked in the bar that I, I'd worked at several bars by the time I got there, but one of the main, most of my career in bartending was very like blue collar bars. Yeah. So I think, you know, I, I, I talk like this, whether I'm a therapist, I'm on a podcast or I'm in solitary confinement. Yeah. So they actually didn't like me and I, I made a deal with them yeah. <laughs> at the jump. There was a TV and the time that we would do group therapy, Jerry Springer would play. And so I would make a deal that if we did twenty five minutes of feelings, they could take the next twenty five minutes and watch Jerry Springer, and that was like that
0: is <laughs> hilarious. You yeah, you like you saw what motivated them. Okay, and you called it twenty five minutes of feelings. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I love
1: that. And you know, we would talk. What I what I quickly realized in between doing that work, the work in the hospital, and then individual therapy for these particular men, is you know, there is a huge overlap between like trauma. Yeah. And like not have like someone who's born into specifically like a traumatic lifestyle, like they don't have time to learn. Anger management, naming feelings, how to cool down. So I left Rutgers Island after my internship was up. I had a few stints internationally. But when I returned stateside, I did a little bit more forensic work, but I quickly kind of realized I think that was sort of done for me. And I had a lot of imposter syndrome and a lot of guilt, but I I kept joking, like I'm selling out to private practice. But I did move to New Jersey from New York and started in private practice with a specialty of trauma and anxiety.
0: I mean, I imagine that you can only kind of put yourself in that situation and deal with all of that anxiety and stress for so long. Like you have to take care of yourself.
1: Yes. Yeah. And, you know, um, I actually really liked working in solitary fo- confinement, if that's even like a that sounds insane coming out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> but when you reapply for Rikers Island, they could have put me anywhere. And you know, I, that was just not something that I was looking to do. I really wanted to have more control over choosing with a lot of intention of like where I was working. Yeah. So yeah, I moved to private practice, spent a few years there. And recently, about a year and a half ago, I opened my own practice. So I'm now exclusively I have my own practice. I work for no one but me. Oh, well, you
0: you deserve it because wow, like what a what a colorful career you've had already. <laughs> and you're you graduated in 99? I graduated high school in
1: 99, yeah, college.
0: Okay, so so you're one year younger than me and look at everything you've done. I'm looking at I'm thinking about my job history and I'm like, okay, well, moving on. <laughs> well, and so tell me about sobriety for you. And and your relationship with alcohol and how that ties into it cuz we talk a lot on this podcast about trauma and anxiety and all of those things and how tied that is to alcohol. Yeah, so what have you learned?
1: Yeah, so you know, I have been I was sober curious for a few years before I really took the plunge. And I say this a lot to like clients and pretty much anyone who will listen. Like again, I've four degrees, four in mental health. Absolutely nobody taught me about alcohol and mental health. That's insane. Isn't that, that is wild. Yeah. I think there was maybe a a pocket of a course that talked specifically about addiction, but it really, I had no idea about, you know, how it relates to anxiety, our cortisol levels, our shame, how it affects trauma, right? None of that. And a few years ago, it's funny, I can't even like date back to when this all Started, I think it happened so subtly, but somewhere along the line, I still bartended despite doing all of this stuff until really recently, until basically COVID. And I married my boss at the bar. Oh, nice. So I'm now actually, even currently, a co owner of a bar right around like maybe right before COVID started. I personally started noticing how bad my anxiety was. And it was like very alarming to me, especially because this is what I do for a career. So like talk about imposter syndrome and just feeling like a hypocrite. And I was really not managing my anxiety well. And I was doing all of this stuff, right? I was meditating. I'm seeing a therapist. I'm like reading books. And somewhere along the line, I just kind of observed when I didn't drink, I felt better, right? And- I had a long commute. I was commuting. I was traveling a lot, and I started listening to a podcast, um, which birthed my like love of podcasts, Seltzer Squad. And
0: oh my god, that's awesome! I love that podcast too. You guys, check it out, Seltzer Squad, because that is they're good. They're just and they're so relatable and funny, and they talk so openly and honestly about sobriety. I love it.
1: And for you know why I think I I picked their podcast is their new their ex New York City bartenders, right? So it was like super relatable. Me. And so I started to kind of planted a seed there a little bit. And my times going sober were just getting a little bit longer, right? Like, I'm like, oh, I want a week. Let me go 10 days. But it wasn't this, there was really no much intention around it. And then somewhere in my exploring, like I discovered Quitlet, I read Holly Whitaker's book, which I think- um, So good. So good, which I, I think for me was where it like took a, like changed my direction that's quit like a woman
0: for anyone who does. Who's just new on this journey? Yes. Okay. Yep.
1: Yeah. So I read her book and she talks a lot about you know it, maybe not so overtly, but the relationship of like feeling really shameful. That was like a huge aha moment for me. That I here I'm doing all this work right because my I do trauma anxiety. I work a ton with the queer community and I also do sex therapy. So we talk about shame constantly, right? Like how to overcome shame, what kind of shame, how shame leads limiting thoughts. And I don't know why, but it suddenly started to like pair these two things together, right? Probably relatably to anybody who listens to your podcast, we've, you know, if you're renegotiating your relationship with booze and or are sober, at some point, you've probably had that shame spiral, right? Yes. And yes, for me, that was my drinking life. You know, I never identified with the word addict. I never identified with the word alcoholic. I just was having this giant revelation that I was limiting myself in such extreme ways. I was, you know, waking up and like making rules for myself, like I'll drink on Mondays, right? Oh, God, i going to have two glasses. And then I would wake up and sometimes I would nail it and I would feel awesome. And then more often than not, I would not nail it. And I would just not trust myself anymore. And just feel like a failure, right? Like, ah, look at me. And that, you know, my, my philosophy on mental health, when I talk to clients, is that our limiting beliefs is the biggest thing that gets in our way, right? If we do not feel we can do something, we won't do it. If I don't think I'm good enough, I'm going to choose a partner who's a part of me who can't meet my expectations, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. Like starting with that, like that, that's such a, that's such a hard place to start.
1: It is, right? If I don't think that I'm qualified and I think that I'm like a piece of garbage, I'm not applying for my dream job. And I was just starting to have these like little pockets of awareness of like, oh my God, what am I doing to myself? And I wish that my journey stopped there and I just became sober. I didn't. It took way longer with like trial and errors.
0: I think this is important to, to shout out because like my mom and I always talk about like the five stages of change and how long change takes and that it's generally not this just linear thing that you could draw a line from here to here. It's like, I love that it's not, I mean, I'm sure it was, it's, it's hard when you're going through it and it feels like this is going to be forever, but that it's not this neat thing. You're not on step one. And then two, and then three, and, up, and then done. Yeah, that it's that's all a part of it, and I think so often that's colored as failure, and then there, that's that shame spiral that goes into it. And if we can just like put a a what do you call it a stick in the spoke, I love it. <laughs> you know, when when you when you're on that like shame spiral, if you just if alcohol came in and tricked you again, and it's like put a stick in the spoke, like you don't that's not helping the journey, and yeah. What are you telling yourself?
1: All of that. Right. And, and, so you know, I started to kind of believe more of what I tell my clients. I heavily rely on self-compassion exactly as you just described adding shame. Like, okay, I took a step back and I drank last name and I was really committed not doing. I feel horribly shameful about that. And now the, the shame is overshadowing the rest of the work. We have to work through the shame before we can even get to like, huh, what didn't work this time? What can I do differently? We don't get there. So, you know, I I started sort of stockpiling all the quit lid and reading all sorts of things, listening to podcasts. And my takeaways, as it relates, alcohol relates to mental health, are a few. One is it was fascinating to me what alcohol does to your brain and like uh, the hormones, right? So yes. you know, it gets that huge sp- spike of dopamine, right? Which We think is our reward center. It's more like our desire center. So if I've conditioned myself to really believe like it's five o'clock somewhere and vacation means booze and I need to relax and that means booze and I'm at a social event and it's celebratory and that means booze, right? And I'm stressed. I'm stressed. Like literally every single feeling, right? Every feeling, right? I conditioned that response. So when I just think it, that dopamine starts to go up, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to get this thing. And what I didn't know is that alcohol artificially spikes your dopamine, right? So it's like you get the natural dopamine that you get from anything. I could get the same release from like, yay, my dog's here. I'm going to pet my dog. But booze spikes that baby up. And so that made sense to me. Like once it's kind of like if now na- if you know, you know, like once I learned that, I couldn't unlearn it. So I'm like, that makes so much sense. Okay. So at start of the day, I'm like, I'm going to have... Two drinks out after work. Like, that's it. I had the best of intentions. But when I start drinking, that dopamine spikes and that chemical inside of my brain no longer is letting me, Allison, function the way I did before I took that first sip. And there's really no way to mind over a matter of that, right? Like, that's just a chemical thing.
0: Yeah, that's just a brain thing. And also, like, you're more impulsive. Totally. Your brain is not the same as it was when you made those rules, which is why moderation is hell on earth.
1: Hell on earth, right? Oh, awesome. hell on earth. <laughs> it was so bad for me. I can't speak for everyone, but it was really bad for me. So that was like a huge awakening for me. And then the thing that happens afterwards, which I also didn't know, was that you know, your body wants to come back to homeostasis. It's always fighting to get itself back. So because there's this huge spike in dopamine, it's like, well, what do we do with that? So it chucks in some cortisol. Right to balance it back out. Right? Cortisol is our stress hormone, which happens about six hours after your last drink. So if you've ever had the experience of like waking up in the middle of the night with that like racing heart, what did I do? I need to check my texts, just that awful feeling that I I just kind of like got used to as sort of an aftermath of drinking. It's just like, oh yeah, I'm gonna feel that horrible feeling.
0: Yeah, that waking up at three a.m. the the sitting up in bed. Oh my god,
1: horrible, right? Like, and I would get would have all of the standard. Like, I would you know, my heart would race. I'd feel like garbage. I would be in this weird shame spiral. I'd feel so stressed out. I'd ask my husband if we thought, even if we didn't. It, I almost like a little bit of paranoia. And now I get it. I'm like, oh, it's not me. It's not a character flaw of me. It's that I'm I'm doing this activity. That's spiking my cortisol, and there's not a damn thing I'm going to do to to calm that down, other than I'm staying for alcohol.
0: Yeah, it's literally out of our control, out of our control. And and that's the thing. Like this doesn't happen to just people who drink a lot. This happens to anyone who drinks. That's right. And I like that you said it's not a weakness in you if you can't control this because it's just
1: it's just science. It's just science right? And that, you know, maybe because my brain is so research-based and and that's just like what I connect to. But that knowledge helped me a lot because, you know, I don't know how everyone has a different sober journey, but something that I was up against that was really difficult for me is I don't identify with an alcoholic and I don't look like an alcoholic, which means when I tell people that I stop drinking, they're not like very supportive at the jump, right? It's like, no, you're fine. You can totally just have a drink. Like, what are you talking about? You always pay your bills. You never get into fights. You're totally fine. You're hilarious when you're drunk. Right. And that has me drinking for a long time. Yes. Or they're like, oh
0: my God, how bad did it get? You were so good at hiding it. And it's like, well, yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. And it's like, you know, finally, I now actually actively say when people ask me why I don't drink, my response is my anxiety gets out of control when I drink. And, you know, the other aha moment to me was, you know, the parts of your brain that start to shut down when you're drinking. So your body believes in, you know, ethanol is a poison, right? Like that's just a scientific fact. And our body doesn't want poison in it. So when we start to drink, things start to shut down, right? So our motor skills go, right? It's part of our brain responsible for motor skills. Like, Ash, you don't need that. You don't need that. We'll let her slur. We'll let her fall. He can, he can tumble. Then our, you know, our emotional regulation, the part of our brain responsible for emotional regulation starts to go dark, right? Which if you've ever bartended or even been in a bar, you can see like three o'clock in the morning, there's crying and like, they're not, those people are not living their best lives, right? No, (laughs) Just not. And the next thing to go is our short-term memory, right? It's like, okay, You've gotta remember your wedding day, the birth of your child, any notable accomplishment you ever had in your life, but you certainly don't need to know where you left your phone or how you got home last night.
0: I love how you're saying this because it's like, no, these are this is how your brain is like surviving because there's a threat. Right? The, you're, as soon as you drink alcohol, it's like your your whole system goes into, okay, we have to protect this. Your liver works over time, it forgets everything else, like your hormones are not important right now because we, we have to attack this toxin in the system. And so like red alerts go off. And so it's not just like, oh, it's a side effect of drinking. It's like, no, no, no. It's your body trying to
1: fucking save you. Absolutely. And like, what a beautiful thing her body's doing. Like, Yes. Gorgeous. Like, thank you, body, for saving me. Yeah, right. Thank you, brain. <laughs> thank you, brain. Thank you for letting me make wise decisions and not impulsive, terrible ones. Um, so, you know, that was it. It was just, to me, it was like, okay, so I'm going to drink this alcohol. I'm going to start to make impulsive decisions. I'm going to pick fights with my husband that I wouldn't otherwise pick. I'm going to have hellacious anxiety So all of that sort of combined to just a revelation to me that like, what would life look like if I just let this go? And I mostly committed and then kept taking like little steps back. And actually, funnily, I, how I got completely sober was somewhat by accident, but I wanted to go to Bali and I found the most perfect Zen, perfect retreat in Bali. And I was like, this is my jam. I'm ready. And I Googled the woman running it. And I realized that the retreat was sober only. And I was like, is some crap. I mean, I'm mostly sober, uh, right? Like, yeah. yeah, that should be fine enough. And like on her website, it clearly was like, no, you have to be sober. And so my trickiness, I signed up for she's a coach, She's an alcohol coach, and signed up for her discovery call just to check her out. I got on the phone with her. And by the end of the 60 minute discovery call, I was like, in tears. I was like, Aww, Oh, my God, I yeah. need to quit drinking permanently. <laughs> and I that's amazing. I, I hired her. She, uh, she actually wrote a book as well. I read her book. Wait, who uh, is it? Carolina. She wrote Euphoric. Yes, yeah. I
0: have it right here. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah.
1: She's absolutely incredible, life changing. She's now my book coach. I'm uh, writing a book. Oh. Retirement. But, I love so it. I met her and we did a lot of work together. The way that she does her coaching resonated really well with me and, and speaks to all the things we just talked about. I was able to be open with her on the times that I slipped. I was able to like work through it, and we really, you know, something she had said to me, which was, "If you're coming from like a deprivation mindset, this is going to be so much harder." You are about to live your best life. What is your dream goal? And I was like writing a book about women empowerment. She was like, "Okay, how is drinking getting in your way?" And I was like, "Man, because I'm hungover on Saturday night, or I don't want to. I don't Saturday morning. I don't want to write my book." And she's like. We're we're eye on the prize of this damn book. Like this is this is the thing. This is better. Like that, that bullshit is just a beverage. Right? It's a cocktail. Who cares? Your book is a legacy.
0: Uh, and it's such a barrier, it's a barrier. It's a barrier to everything you want to be, to who you are, to who we already are inside. It's just getting in our way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah so I I I quit drinking. We went in a hundred days little uh We did a hundred days at a time out of like four, probably 400, 500 days. I did drink about five times, but currently am I like this last round? I I can't even imagine drinking again. Um, So I think it's finally like sunk in. It's worked. I'm here. I'm ready to do it. I just got back from a six day trip in Mexico where everywhere you look is alcohol. I was by myself a lot. I had no desire to drink. Yes. So, you know, it's it's a long journey to sort of get to that liberation, especially, you know, something I talk about in mental health obsessively is um, the idea of radical and relentless messaging, right? And like, there's so much messaging, especially for towards women, that is like relentless, right? Like, you have to be, you know, surrender yourself, you have to be the best at everything, what the hell is up there? Anyway, I would say the same thing about alcohol, like, there is relentless messaging like I no sooner landed got into an Uber in Mexico and he was like first stop the bar let's get a roadie and I was like no, I mean- man like I'm good I just I'm going to this like wellness spa like I'm off awesome. I'm my water and you know he was like oh the only word you need to say is cerveza here in Mexico and it's like you know this is it's just a powerful example of just how often we're exposed to Really relentless messaging that, like, alcohol is fine for us.
0: Yeah. And that, and that even just beyond being fine, that it's the solution, like, to any problem we have, alcohol. Yeah. And I look at it now like that, like, we're just a society. I mean, like, numbing, we're like zombies, not feeling. It's like, oh, are you feeling too much? Drink this. Yeah. You know, it's like Alice in Wonderland shit. It's the, and then when you stop, <laughs> you're like, holy shit like what a trick. Like we've all just been tricked this whole time.
1: Yeah. For,
0: for what? For, I mean, it's for money. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Like always just, just follow the money. I love your story because I, you're right where you're supposed to be and it all happened the way it was
1: supposed to. I
0: believe that. Yeah. Like all of the, the slips and the questioning and the Everything like it's just so clear that, it, and you just became mindful and like more and more open to it. And I think that so many times that's how it goes.
1: Yeah, and you know, speaking of mindfulness, like that's that's my like last little takeaway is you know, I I spend especially with trauma, especially with anxiety, I spend so much time teaching people the tools of mindfulness, right? And mindfulness is you know, it gets. It's kind of like misconstrued with meditation. Meditation can be mindful, but mindfulness can be anything. So it's the ability to quiet your brain and focus on one thing. And also the ability to observe what's happening without judgment. Right. And so a huge part of the therapy that I provide is, is skill building around this. Like, listen, what do you like to do you like the garden? Let's figure out how to mindfully garden. Oh, I'm noticing right now you're you're not just stating what you feel, but you're stating what you feel and then you're judging it, right? Like Oh, I'm feeling really frustrated with my kid today. Oh, I'm such a bad mom. Like, okay, let's say that I'm frustrated with my kid. We don't need the judgment. And if you think about what alcohol does, right? If you're practicing all this mindfulness, alcohol takes away mindfulness. You cannot simultaneously be mindful and and drunk. It's just impossible. So it's, it's learning like a more present life, right, without judgment, without the barriers of shame, to be able to actually participate. Now that i become sober, I still go to bars pretty often, I, I, which does not work for everyone for sure. For me, I've been involved in the bar culture for a really, really long 20 years. I own a bar and my husband owns a very famous bar. Um, most of my friends are either bartenders or ex-bartenders. Wait, which bar? Can you say which bar? Sure. My my husband owns uh, – so him and I together own what's called the Duplex, and it's a famous piano bar in New York City. But then my oh. husband also owns um, the Stonewall Inn, which is <gasps> – Okay. Uh, the Stonewall Inn is where the Stonewall Riots happened, which birthed the gay rights movement.
0: Oh, wow. How amazing is that? Yeah.
1: So it's um, arguably the most famous gay bar in the world. Uh, it's when any time there is sort of like a big – queer event either a tragedy or a celebration uh, people from all over the world and uh, come there it is obama designated it a national monument that's amazing so um you know we're, we're still really involved like that's not it's our lifestyle so we're not going to disconnect from that and yeah so i had to really renegotiate like what does this mean as a sober person to be so involved in this culture and think first of all, I'm very proud that the manager of the duplex and I came up with a fantastic mocktail menu, right? And uh, <gasps> That's amazing. That's huge. And so we, we sell like non alcoholic spirits, we make our all of our cocktails can be made as mocktails. We have juice and you know and soda and we experience.
0: we appreciate <laughs> you the sober community that appreciates you because that that is huge i mean because you know now three plus years sober i do want to like you still want to go out you still want to be social being sober doesn't mean we're not social and so having a good mocktail menu is so important
1: yeah because then you feel special right like yeah the the duplex has live music right so we I, you know when I became sober, I was like, look, it's really important. I don't want someone to feel like they can't experience live music because they're not having alcohol and we don't sell food. So we had to got to get crafty about it. It's like, okay, well, we serve these people. And for me, I always utilize, like, my, I very much enjoy mocktails. It makes me feel special. I, I like it all. But something I've noticed when I am out is, you know, and I love my friends dearly. So if they ever listen to this, I'll see a pocket of hugs. <laughs> yes it's difficult to be a sober person and engage in conversations after someone's been a few drinks in, right? Yes. Like, yeah, you can actually, as a sober person, it's almost become observable to watch someone, the presence follower, right? It's like totally. at drink one, you're, you're like excited and you're sharing details. And I'm like, drink four, you're kind of slurring, you're repeating yourself. You're loud, loud, right? Uh, absolutely. Oh my God. My husband's so loud. He's loud as- <laughs> I know. <laughs> He's not sober. I've adopted that now. I'm like, oh my god, I'm screaming again. <laughs> but you know, something that that is helpful to me is I've now checked out at like you know I give myself a shelf life. Like I enjoy the experience of going to a bar. I also I'm never there at closing time anymore.
0: Yeah, and also like I love like when you're sober and you're out somewhere. I go home when I'm tired. And totally like, you. I didn't know when I was tired, when I was drinking, I was like tired. What? It's like, I wasn't tired. And now I'm like, oh, I'm tired. I get to go home to my bed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I had a therapist once, my my therapist to tell me like, you need to learn the difference between being tired and passing out. And I was like, oh, <sighs> that's true. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that yeah. I do, right? I get exhausted. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Like noticing that I'm yawning, I'm getting a little more fatigued i would to get restful rejuvenating sleep rather than just like existing
0: yes exactly and it's it is all about that mindset shift you know of when anybody is like newly sober and they're like i'm afraid i'm going to miss out and like i'm i'm like we have to remember that when we're drinking we are literally missing out yeah. we are like all of our senses are being numb. Our brain is going to be offline. Like we are a concert. We're we're more worried about, you know, going to the bar to get our next drink. We might miss our favorite song. Like we are literally missing out. And so it always is for me, like those, just just those fun events, the holidays, the vacations, the concerts, the weddings. Like I love those
1: things sober Mm -hmm. because you actually get
0: to experience them and they're actually fun
1: so beautiful right yes yes and that's the point like that's the point of life is to experience these things we have you know i joke with my clients i'm like we have senses for a reason we're supposed to taste things we're supposed to hear things we're supposed to touch things right exactly as you said everything from like food you know like look at someone who's drunk eating like are they enjoying the food that they're eating no drunk sex like yeah i mean could people theoretically have some decent to okay sex sure but you know being present is part of the experience and like
0: feeling everything you guys silver sex is way better and also like we're supposed to feel things like we're supposed to feel sad like pain pain is an indicator like we're supposed to Absolutely. feel pain we're supposed to feel frustration even some anxiety i'm still on you know zoloft and so like if your anxiety is out of control that's get help for that but feeling some these are all indicators Oh, my God. I could talk to you forever. I could talk to you about sobriety forever. I could talk to you, first of all, about your your private eye (laughs) background. I could talk to you about Rikers. Oh, I love this conversation. I'm just so glad that you came on here and shared.
1: Appreciate it. Yeah. I think it's very important to share our stories, right? I know hearing other people's stories really changed the trajectory for me. So, you know, I think the way we kind of combat these radical messaging is just share these stories because I do believe that it's creating a cumulative effect, right?
0: Yes. I think so too. Even just planting that seed like the Seltzer Squad did for you of like, wait a second. And it might take, you know, a year, two years, whatever, however long that change is going to take. But it's just like beginning to question. I think that that's where it all starts because generally we've been taught that if you question alcohol, that means you have a quote unquote problem. And so we're, we're taught like, no blinders on nothing to see here. And that's just not true. Like for anybody.
1: No, it's empowering and beautiful and it's the greatest act of self-love. So.
0: Oh, it's the greatest act of self-love. I love that so much. Alison, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you
1: so much. Appreciate it.
0: Okay, Steph, you're on Real Sober Mom Life. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Okay, let's start with the alcohol story.
2: Okay, so I have been sober since January 3rd of this year. And I was thinking about the story. I grew up, my dad drank, um, my mom did not. They fought about it. I re- like I'm starting to do the whole reflection thing. And, and I remember they were getting divorced. I was probably in high school and I would escape and go with my friends. Mm. And then I feel like I grew up in upstate New York. Um, it's a pretty small town. And, you know, the parties in the woods and all the cool older people. And I, it was just the thing everybody did. And like I said, I just wanted to be out of the house any chance I had. And then... It continued. I moved to San Diego for college, which now looking back, it's like, why did I want to get so far away? Because you can't get any further away than that. Yeah, you went the farthest away that you could get, which is I
0: mean, that's understandable. Like growing up in a household of divorce, like I totally get it. And so like alcohol was there for you. It it served a purpose, right?
2: It did. And uh, you know, to escape all that. And when I was in college, I think it's the typical, you know, you find the people that drink like you do. And I was one of those typical people that said, you know, oh, they don't drink or where's the drink at? And it continued. And then when I was 32, I had my first daughter. I'm 44 now. And this whole mommy thing is just really resonating with me because we were in San Diego without family and really a support system. And everybody still drank. Our friends were not changing their lifestyle at all. And it was just normal to put her in the car seat and go to our favorite local bar, you know, because when on the good days when they're sleeping most of the time and have some drinks and go back home. And um, it was just what we did. Fast forward, we moved to Ohio where my ex-husband grew up, gosh, almost 10 years ago now. And again, lonely didn't know anybody. He grew up here. I did not. And um, yeah, the na- we have a you know neighborhood where everybody just sits outside and drinks together. And it continued. I have a... I'm trying to think how old she was when she was six. I had my second daughter who's now seven. And it wasn't as much with her. I was tired. I remember my ex-husband would take the older one outside to play. But I remember bits and pieces where I would have her, the little one in bed with me, nursing, or when she would fall asleep, I'd have wine next to me on the nightstand. Or when, you know, the bedtime stories and and it just continued and continued. Two and a half years ago, August of 2020, I know 2020 is a big point for everybody. My husband and I had gotten in a fight and he left and I was distraught. It was, I mean, we had your typical problems, but I was shocked. He wasn't coming home, wasn't coming home. Fast forward six months, And I find out it is my neighbor slash not a best friend, but a neighborhood best friend across the street this whole time. what? So it was like it happened twice because I had no idea. (laughs) Oh, hold on. Oh, my God. I was hanging out with them the whole six months, her and her husband who were divorced and nobody knew. And that's a whole other. And so your husband was having an affair with her. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. The week before he left, or a couple weeks before that July, I had taken them to my hometown, to my lake in upstate New York. Two families. So this was... What? So needless to say, the drinking... Oh my God.
0: that's This is always mind-blowing to me too because it's... I mean, you're hit because obviously your husband having an affair is heartbreaking and the worst thing. But it's also breaking the trust of a, a good friend. I mean, that is... Wow.
2: Yes. Wow, wow, wow. How did you cope with that? I drank and drank and drank. Um, I was working from home. And when I didn't have my kids, that's still hard. I'm going to be honest. And I get a little shy and insecure, but also just these mom stories have helped me. And I don't hear as much divorced. You know, a lot of the women that have come on, like, does your husband still drink and this kind of thing? And I just feel like, There's a lot more people going through it or in the Tuesday meetings that don't have their kids some of the times and it's real and I don't think people are saying it and it's, I mean, I would, when they weren't here, I would drink all day long till I would pass out, you know, on on the couch or um, I was listening to, I don't know if it was when you were speaking with Casey Davidson or something of hers, but the party would start on the couch and that's exactly what I did. I hope
0: you look at that and give yourself a lot of compassion and grace because what you went through, I mean, what goes through my mind is like, of course, right? Like you were heartbroken. You were alone. You were, you didn't know what to do. Like, I'm sure like the bottom fell out. It did. And like when the bottom falls out, like that's scary. We don't know what to do when the bottom falls out. Right.
2: It's still surreal in a lot of ways, but, um, and I do appreciate it now, but it took some time, you know, and obviously as, as we're all learning, stopping the drinking, which we think is helping us, you know, it's making me really, and I am proud and trying to give myself grace. I, I did some not so pretty things. I texted and texted and that's kind of, when I ended up stopping after. So all that went on for a couple of years. And then I dated a little bit. Um, that's another story, which I never even really dated before. But
0: yeah, how was that? And you you were drinking when you were dating, right? Because that dating, I mean, right. When you're married,
2: how long were you married? Almost 10 years. We were together almost 17 or 15. Oh, my God. Like to get back to dating. How scary is that? It is. And I had never really dated before. I had, you know, the same boyfriend through high school and, um, and it's, it's terrifying, but I felt like, oh, I need to, to be able to talk to these people right, and be comfortable. And then I would drink too much and text and text and text. And, um, there was an, a guy I dated for about six months that broke my heart. Um, he was a widow. So it just, it was all and then nothing. Um, and so I had New Year's, I was with some friends and I drank that whole weekend. And I know it was January 3rd because there was a football game here in Cincinnati the night before uh, when the Bills player got injured and I was texting him and other people in New York. Fast fast forward. So I wake up in the morning and I was like, if you can't not text, you can't drink, period. That was that. And I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a time frame. I was just like, until you can... Because you're going to beat yourself up. I'd get to the point where I was scared to look at my phone in the morning. You know, oh God, I know I text. What did I say? What did I say? And um, later that week, I joined the uh, Naked Mind 30 Day Alcohol Experiment. Yeah, how was that? It was amazing. I had done it. No, I'm sorry, I didn't do it, but I looked into it prior. But this time, I actually did it and did the every day. I don't know how familiar everybody is with it, but the daily information and journaling, and I did it and just for some reason my eyes opened to the science of it and
0: And yeah and once you learn the science I mean if you're at all sober curious and like starting to look at your relationship with alcohol I feel like when you learn the science coupled with looking at what alcohol has done to your life that's that's a big for me too that was like holy shit like how do you go
2: back Mm -hmm. you can't I mean it's I'm just thirsty now and hungry and I just want to, but just, you know, the little things like the science, but, um, if you use it for self-medication, especially it's proven that it can lead to more. And I, you know, just things like that, that you don't even realize. And, um, now that, you know, you can't unknow it. And, um, yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Deep breath because that's, you have, you've been through a lot.
0: I mean, I think that this idea, you know, I always talk about, like, we don't have to wait for rock bottom. We deserve a softer place to land. And all of our, those bottoms for all of us are so different. Your bottom, like, your too much was texting. And like, in the grand scheme of things, like, okay, like, what's a text, right? But for you, like, it all comes back to how it that was making you feel in the morning, looking at your phone and being like, oh, my God, all of that. Oh, my God, I know... I know those feelings. I know that dread, that self-hate, that how you talk to yourself, how
2: could you, all of that spiraling bullshit totally like wears on you, right? Like we were talking about the other day, Um, in your sober mind, you wouldn't say it like that, but it's kind of all the pent up, I don't know what the F is going on and it's just gonna come out and vomit text. And um, I did it with my ex when we were going through that and um, uh, I had a lot of people... Some people kind of didn't understand, obviously, and, you know, you need to tell me what I need to do or how I should feel, or you should be glad he's gone. And that made it almost more lonely in a way. Oh, my God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just things like that. Yeah. That's not helpful. What
0: did help you during that time? Like, if we have friends who are going through something like this, or if we want to support someone, what is something that would have helped to hear?
2: It's not your fault. Yes. Yes. But the biggest thing is, which I'm learning now, you know, I'm doing all the work on myself now because what he did, what they did, what so-and-so did was completely wrong.
0: Yeah.
2: But I need to look at myself. What role did I play in it? Why am I attracting these kind of people? Why is this normal to me? So if I could go back, I think things that would help would be go when people text, there are people that care, you know, and I had a, a couple friends that they're like, I don't know what to do anymore. I can't reach out anymore just getting to that point of not knowing. I want you to reach out, but I'm not telling you. And just realizing it's okay to, you know, even if you just want someone to come over and organize a kitchen cabinet with you, just small things. Oh my God,
0: I'll do that. Can I come over and organize a kitchen cabinet? (laughs) I love it, anytime. Oh my God, I love that too. I would much rather do something like that than like go to dinner and blah, blah. I'm like, can we just, yeah, come over and let's organize the pantry and just talk. And like drink kombucha and listen to good music. Like, right? Yeah, yeah. We need to normalize
2: those kind of friendship dates
0: because that's, yeah, that's way better.
2: And uh, yeah, just being open to that, I think is huge. And also along with that, it it was super lonely too because I wanted to drink. I didn't want to go anywhere and have to drive because it got nasty. I don't know if that was guilt or what. That's a whole other thing. But I didn't know if I was going to be watched. If, you know, I'd hear comments He would know when I was drinking and the, I mean, just little things. And so I was, I isolated more and I would only say just one tiny thing. Just don't do that.
0: Yes. It's so true. My mom always talks about this, that like when we're going through something hard, if it's heartbreak, depression, grief, loss, all of the shit that life throws at us, like our first instinct is to like curl up in a ball and isolate and not reach out and not talk about all of the shit that's in our head and our heart and all of that hard stuff, that is like what we want to do, right? Because we're in protection mode. And that's too scary to talk about some of these things. That is also the worst thing we can do, right? Because that's exactly when we need to, like my mom would always say when I was grieving my dad, my mom would always, when she like saw me like, you know, you could just tell I'm sitting there spiraling in my head. She would always say, think out loud. Like, just think out loud. Like, you don't have to have it all together. You don't need to like know a plan, but just, yeah, not to isolate. And that doesn't mean like not to go and take a nap and be alone because sometimes you do need that. Yeah, you do need to, I do need to cry alone on the floor in my closet. But it is that I like that you say like, just go like, yeah, just answer the text. Just go meet your friends. Say yes. Even when you feel like saying no, I always feel like saying no. P.S. Okay. So when you decided you did the alcohol experiment, Annie Grace's alcohol experiment. Yes. And you learned all of the all of the stuff and you started that like excavation process, right? That's a great word for it. Yes. Yes. And then what happened?
2: And then I kept going. Yeah. I was, I still am. I mean, the books that I have, you know, all the Quitlet, and I'm making lists of the movies and journaling. I kept journaling every, you know, I heard people always say, oh, journal. And I'm like, I don't know what to say. But I've started just even keeping a notepad. It doesn't have to be some thought out, you know, I'm, that's back with the grace to myself and like with the isolation. You want the answer for the whole future and just take little bites of it. And so journaling, I read really fast. So sometimes I'm like, what did I just read? So I'll just write notes like if a one-liner sticks with me. So yeah, then it went from that to podcast to all the literature, movies, more therapy for myself, ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families, which who can't relate to that? right? I don't quite get the 12th steps and working them and all that, but the amount of meetings that they have. And there's also trauma-focused ones. You know, there's all this coming out now with trauma and attachment. And, um, you know, I don't want to blame anybody or go back Freudian style to when I'm three, but I mean, it is all related.
0: No, it is. That's when the
2: wiring was set, right? I don't want to keep making the same mistakes. Mm-hmm. My daughter saw me, I mean, at a low. I'm, I mean, I want them to see, yeah, you can mess up. You can go through hell and get yourself handle it in a more productive way yeah I mean you're showing them that it, it, it,
0: you're doing the work like that's what it sounds like and you know mom always says this you guys I mentioned mom a lot because she's just no it's
2: good she's amazing for those that haven't amazing
0: yeah she's amazing we were talking about a few days ago you know in the group sometimes we do talk about like husbands spouses exes And how their role in our lives, because it's a huge role, but she said, the thing about when you're talking about another person, it's like taking your car in to get serviced, right? And then having them work on another car. And it's like, well, no, like we're taking our car in, like, can you look at our car and like figure out what's going on under our hood? Because like you fixing their car, first it's not even here, but that's just not going to help my car, right? Right. Yeah. And so I, I love that analogy. And like you said that they did like what your husband and the neighbor and they made horrible decisions and they have to deal with that. And that will, you know, but then you being like, okay, yes, they did that. That was awful. But now let's look at me. Uh-huh. Like
2: that's the gold mine, right? Like that's where everything is. A thousand percent. And um, yeah, and I I do try to give grace. That's for whatever reason, that's what I needed at the time. And I can't look back. And you know, you can have mom guilt about everything. And I I can only do better with what I have now.
0: Yes. And what a great lesson to teach your daughters too. You know, like, yeah, you're not gonna hang yourself over the coals. That's not what it is. What is it? Rake yourself over the coals? And hang yourself out to dry. Yes. You're not going to hang yourself up to dry over the coals for the rest of your, for the rest of your life. And like, we don't want them doing that. We want our kids to make bad choices and then recover. Like that's, it's the recovery of it. It's not the choice. Right. Yeah. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. And you also, I mean, you you show up to our meetings and you found a community. I think that, yeah, that motherhood can be so lonely. And then when your kids are with their dad, I hear that from so many moms that that's the time,
2: right? It is. Yeah. What do you do now? So now I'm into what book am I going to read next? And, you know, the groups. And um, I joined the Patreon so I can go Fridays as well. And it sounds silly, but you're not alone. I mean, you think, oh, no one will ever understand. And the people that did, there are people that I've lost and didn't understand, but that's another blessing in disguise. You learn who you want in your circle. I'm saying that because it relates to drinking as well. I've heard people, you know, if they're not invited or then they're not your people. Totally. And it doesn't matter what they think or what they do, but the point of the groups and finding different communities and, um, as far as L- or ACA and things like that, I don't know exactly which one. I'm just going to as many as I possibly can, any that sound interesting. Yeah. But all that to say, you're not alone. You think you're crazy. You think no one will get it. Everybody has their kids in this cookie cutter life and it's just not the case.
0: No, it's so not the case. And I think that's the biggest takeaway of finding a community. Like you find a community where you say something that you that like you have held onto with so much shame. And then you're like, God, I'm gonna say it. And like, no one balks and no one's like, what? Exactly. How could? Yeah, they're just like, yep. Mm-hmm. You're like, holy shit. Like, I think that's your first sign that those are your people.
2: It is. And I know you've talked about it, um, agnosium, but people that come out and they're looking at their own drinking. I just want to back that up that it's so true. And it's almost in a way, I almost feel like people look up to me that, you know, ask questions. And and I feel like this isn't why I'm doing it. But I just feel maybe it's because I'm in it now. But I feel like it's a movement. Yes. And it's something to be proud of and be a part of. And like I said, I'm so shy. But if it can help one person or...
0: I would never guess that you're shy. I wouldn't. I think it depends. I think it just depends. Yeah. I mean, you're obviously like passionate about this and like you you know so it's not yeah you seem you're like glowing confident I'm just so oh
2: thank you and every
0: time I see your face pop up in the group it it makes me happy because
2: you're just like you're like a bright light. You really are saying that you are too and thank you. We need each other. This is amazing. We do we need each other. That's so
0: true. Well I'm so proud of you. I'm proud of you for coming on and sharing your story. I'm proud of you for what you've been through. And for how you're doing now and how you're healing and growing and all of it. I, I just, I know that the best is yet to come. I can just see it. I believe that. I'll oh. keep you posted. Yes. Yeah. We need a follow-up. Yes. <laughs> are they still together, P.S.? Uh-huh. They
2: are? Yeah, they, they are. I mean, this is, how long has it been? Um. Well, that I know of, about two and a half years. Her ex-husband, I don't know all the details, and I'm sure I don't want to. Like I said, he left August of 20. He saw the first inappropriate text, or what you want to call it, spring of 2019. Oh, my God. So I, I don't, I mean,
0: it's... Oh, my God. Okay. I wish I didn't end on that. I don't want to end on that. Who cares? Who cares about him? Exactly. Oh. Exactly. Okay. Well, I'm so proud of you. It's his loss. It's... A thousand percent his loss. That's right.
2: Yes. Oh, Steph, thank you. Thank you. It was so good talking with you and I'll see you soon. Okay.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sober Mom Life. If you loved it, please rate and review it wherever you listen. Five stars is amazing. Also follow me on Instagram at The Sober Mom Life. Okay.